I'll tell you something I love about being in France, in addition to some seriously delicious butter, and that is the wide selection of wines I can find in France for low prices. It can be much more difficult to source those same bottles back in the States, and that's why I love to buy wines out of France with Ideal Wine. I have bottles shipped to me, hassle-free. It's easy. Ideal Wine has a new auction every week and is a great source for iconic names like Ouette, Louis Roeder, and Domaine Lefleve, as well as rising stars like Arnaud Lachaud, Gonon, and Tissot. Find the wines you'd rather be drinking at idealwine.com. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com and have the wine shipped to you in the States. Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Hardy Wallace is here from Dirty and Rowdy Winery. Hello, sir. How are you? Hey, I'm doing fantastic. Thank you for having me. Nice to have you here. Thank you. So, I mean, does anyone really know that you don't need glasses and you just wear them <laughs> from the stylistic appeal? Or? Exactly. These yeah. things are uh, clear lenses uh, from my back back of my day on the stage. <laughs> well, let's talk about Hardy back in the day. You, yeah. You grew up in Beverly, Mass. I did. Were you a mass hole or were you <laughs> st- one of... St- still am. It's in, my, it's in my blood. One of the others. <laughs> no, uh, I, I definitely I grew up in Beverly. Uh, so about 25, 27 miles north of Boston. I uh, lived there through high school. And then in high school, my family moved um, right as I graduated, moved to Tampa, Florida. Um, at that point, I moved down to North Carolina to go to a small college in Greensboro and never really went back to Massachusetts. So... I really, for about, I guess, 17, 18 years, lived down south before moving to California. And even though I am uh, born and bred uh, a mass hole, um, it was really like the south that I thought um, where I really grew up. And so I usually I identify with both, but I think a lot of people from especially things that I've written before, like with Dirty South Wine and things online, have always thought, like, you know, this Atlanta guy or this Southern guy. And really, yes, but you know, I, I, I always say I... Um, I was born in the north, and that was not my fault. Because it so. could have been dirty Dukakis wine. <laughs> exactly, you and K- Kitty would have loved that. <laughs> she was. Uh, <laughs> she would have been able to give up on the rubbing alcohol that she used to be chugging. So you. <laughs> this what, is all what, getting edited. What, right? what, what could have been <laughs> exactly you know, the outtakes? The whole show is going to be outtakes. <laughs> Perfect. So you. Uh, you you studied Indian music for a while. I did. I, I studied Indian classical music from probably 1991, really actually up until about 2005, 2006. And it was really, especially in that period of time from about 91 to 2000, it was my main focus. Um, and it was something I was able to do semi-professionally. Um, you know, I played a lot of great gigs, and but I still couldn't make a living on it. So I always thought that not necessarily pure Indian classical music, and this is India Indian classical music, um, 
I never thought I would be able to make a living as a classical musician. Actually, I knew I wouldn't, but I thought fusion, jazz, rock. Um, I've heard of Nora Jones, for instance. Yeah, absolutely. So stuff like that, but probably a little further out there, maybe on kind of the kind of the jazz, or um, definitely came back. You know, I came out of the uh, you know the late '80s, early '90s hippie scene, where like, oh, I'm gonna play with the Grateful Dead. <laughs> Or, but something, you know, something in, along that while, you know, that world, some sort of fusion type music. What did you take from that whole experience? You know, that sort of music, um, the Northern Indian classical music that I studied, is there is composition in it, but there is a huge amount of improvisation. And it's improvisation, but within a set of rules. And so you do have a framework, you do have something to work within, but a lot of it is um, moving and changing and reacting, especially... I studied the percussion part of it, and the percussion part is following people for the most part. You do have your moments where you kind of take the lead, but for the most part, you're following and you're moving along with something that's completely and always changing. So I I really took that into a lot of both my music and I think writing, um, and it fits to me perfectly with winemaking. It's the same part of my brain that I think we deal with with fermentation, that we deal with with weather and decisions you make. You know, it's almost the antithesis of, say, European classical music that's all straight composition. This is loose composition with tons of improvisation. And I, you know, whether you want to relate one to, you know, one to baking and one to making fried chicken, you know, I'm, I'm the fried chicken world, so. So you did move to Florida. I did. And what was that like? <laughs> you tell me. You were there for a while, too, right? <laughs> totally different area. Though. Yeah, exactly. Like, oh, you were an East Coaster, was that it? I was I was in Palm Beach. Okay. And t- Palm Beach to Tampa is like, yeah, you know, different, different it's, thing. It totally is. So I moved to Tampa for a few months right after I graduated college in 96. And I really moved down to earn some money to travel. I was able to get a gig um, bartending and also waiting tables. And, you know, at the time uh, for Tampa, really kind of beer and wine focused restaurant, no cocktails or anything. And it was an easy job for me at the time to to work as a bartender because all I had to do was open beer and open bottles. But my, my wine knowledge was really minuscule. There's something that was on the table like on Sunday dinners as a kid. And it could be something as, you know, basic as like back in the day, like Rabbit Ridge or something. Or it could be every once in a while, my dad would open, you know, find like a great deal on like old Bordeaux. And I'd always have an ounce or a little taste. So I knew what it tasted like, but it, it didn't, didn't move me in the heart. But when I started working at this restaurant, it was when I really started, you know, putting all these things. It was really staff trainings that started opening my world and my brain to, um, wow, like, these five different, like, really low-end Chardonnays all taste different. And why? And, you know, one's from New Zealand, one's from South Africa, one's from California, et cetera. And it really started kind of scratching that part of my brain. So I did that for about three months, just enough to um, get some money to travel. And I traveled in India and Nepal, doing mostly music for about six and a half months. And I basically traveled until the money ran out. When I came back, I also went straight back into working in a a wine bar. And same thing, it just kept growing and growing um, that interest with me. And I, I never thought I'd have a career or a life in wine. My whole part at that point was trying to get enough money so chicks. I could... Yeah, chicks. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Which I'm... Yeah, especially back in that day, I was not very good at. Um, well, because they were pulling out the Rabbit Ridge. Exactly. <laughs> Look, it's the light purple label. <laughs> exactly. This is the real good wow, one. Dude. <laughs> I can remember when I first bought that wine back like in 95 or 96, the person selling it to me was telling me about they were able to soften the wine and make it taste older because they put it in a centrifuge. 
Rouge. And I don't know if any of that's true or not, but I'm like, man, Dirty and Rowdy needs to go in a centrifuge. <laughs> so, Dude, it's like all the right stuff, man. Exactly, you know what I mean? Exactly. Like, <laughs> fighter pilot. <laughs> <laughs> Can you handle the G-force of the centrifuge? <laughs> So um, I started, you know, again, working in restaurants just to really try to get money to play gigs. And for a short period of time, I was able to get some really fun gigs, but they'd be like, you know, once every two or three months, I'd, you know, oh, you're opening up for, you know, Bruce Hornsby, you're opening up for Tribe Call Quest or this. And you'd get enough like a plane ticket and a little bit of money. But obviously I had to go right back to, you know, working and sustaining and trying to play in little bands in Tampa. But all through my life from the time I was like a seven-year-old kid or so, um, I'm one of those guys that was, you know, in quotes, like, good with computers, <laughs> whatever whatever that means. Like, Remember dude, when they used to say that? Yeah, dude, he's really good with computers, and he's a people person. <laughs> like, you're like... So, um, and I, I always think, I, I always, like, I ran uh, one of my uh, college's Macintosh labs, kind of my, one of my jobs in school, and which all <laughs> running the Mac lab was, like, basically telling people how to save documents. I mean, it was so easy. I needed zero IT skills. Um, it was one of those things like, which printer are you sending it to? <laughs> exactly. That's why you don't see it coming out. <laughs> That's right. Oh, you you sent it downstairs. <laughs> That's right. Why don't we we'll fix this? I'll get downstairs. And oh, bring it up I to you. see. You need to reload the paper. <laughs> exactly. So it was one of those things. Super it, hacker style. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> and it was one of those things you could have in a resume that just like, oh, wow, this, guy, this guy's really sharp. And you're like, in their background, I'm like, I'm, I was a power user user, not a, um, not a nerd on the backside. So I, uh, a friend of mine started working for a technology distributor in Tampa and it's back right before the dot-com boom. And, you know, every couple of weeks she's like, she's got a new car. She's got this, she's got this. And she's like, Hey, like I can probably get you a job and you'd like these shiny things. And, I'm, <laughs> and, and, and it was totally the what devil. What was she pointing at when she said, do you like these shiny, shiny things? things? I'm just curious. Oh, like a brand new bike, a brand new car, brand, you know, you know, like new apartment. I could move out for my folks and all this stuff. And, um, then, you know, I was like, well, I really want to focus on music. And she's like, well, you could probably focus on music more if you had, you know, some free, scratch, some money, <laughs> a <and> guitar. This. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so I started doing that in 97. And that really led to 12 years of nonstop, like tech sales and marketing from various tiny software companies up until, you know, my last three years of my career was working for a part of Kodak. And, um, Kodak has gone through a lot of changes, hence, uh, you know. They're doing great today. They're doing great today. <laughs> no, hence, I was one of the first people to get laid off right after the economy crashed. But that really led me to a whole nother universe. I mean, that's really where wine for me as a career started. And how did that happen? You know, for 12 years, I really, you know, with any of these companies, I, most of my, I always said, yes, I was involved in sales and marketing, but my job was usually to fly around the country and, you know, take people out to dinner. And... The only real joy I had on it, uh, had from the process, I loved my clients, but not even the business didn't do anything for me, was, you know, sitting down at dinner and opening up a wine list. And for a lot of the time, it was when, you know, expense accounts, you could, you know, go, uh, oh, I'm eating at, you know, so-and-so steakhouse tonight, and uh, you guys want to get the Screaming Eagle? <laughs> I hear it's good. You know, it's... Um, so a lot of times it was that sort of business where it's just, okay, just whatever the clients want, get. And at times the business would tighten up and expand, tighten up and expand. And what I realized in the tight times when like people, okay, watch your expense accounts, watch your expense accounts. I could focus on, I could still drink, you know, buy as much wine as we wanted. But if I f 
bought the things that kind of the clients didn't want to drink. They wanted to drink Napa Cab and Chardonnay. But if I could drink Chateau Neuf and I could drink Riesling and I could drink uh, Cru Beaujolais and you know, all these little things that I was interested in, they would switch quickly to cocktails. The clients. Yeah, the clients would switch to cocktails. Um, and I would only have to buy three bottles of wine instead of six. And that's really how I started writing a wine blog at the same time I started. I probably shouldn't, and I never admitted it then, but I was like taking notes on like things that like I was, you know, buying, you know, for dinner. And uh, it just kind of started, you know, okay, I want to write about this one and this one and this one, just to have in the back of my mind what I'm consuming. Um, So when I got laid off, I, I knew that my passion had switched from really from music to wine. And when I got laid off, I knew I'm like, I'm going to do something in wine. And I had no idea what that meant. My skills were in sales. My skills were in marketing. And <laughs> there's so many sales and marketing, uh, you know, gigs that are, you know, you know, that would replace my old income from, you know, from tech world. I mean, it, it was a huge, it would have had to be a huge change in life. It was, um, you know, starting at the very bottom of something. And I didn't know what to do. I didn't know okay, do I go work for a distributor? Do I go work for this or this? But I still had all these expenses. And I still had all this... Uh, experiences. Experiences, but I had all these uh, responsibilities after being laid off from a different lifestyle. Oh, I see. Things that you had to pay for. Yeah, so like, like, yeah like my mortgage. And it was at a time... When the, I, shiny the, shiny the shiny things. The shiny things. I had lots of shiny <laughs> things, and I was still paying for all those shiny things. <laughs> so when I got laid off, it was I couldn't just stop and change my life. I couldn't just, you know, walk away from things. Or, I mean, I could, but I would foreclose my place and all that. So I tried to think of, you know, how can I use my skills to do what I want? Shortly after was the whole Murphy Good thing, which Murphy Good was owned by a Jackson family uh, in the beginning of 2009. Like three weeks after I got laid off, announced this huge, like, social media contest, like, for, like, the best wine job in the world. You know, the person who wins this contest and, you know, will run social media for this brand for six months, make a really good living, free housing and all this stuff. A really good job, they it was, called it. Yep, it was called a really good job. And I saw that as soon as they announced that, I, I'm like, that's my ticket. It was like the Willy Wonka thing. It, it like, really was. It was the golden ticket. And though I had been more interested in other styles of wine, I knew that would get me out there. And it would allow the transition. So I could still pay my mortgage in Atlanta, make the transition, and then I could figure out what it was that I wanted to do. But I knew that would get me in the door. And it was about a four-month hiring process. You know, you had to film, like, a video application. You had to do all these other, like, I felt like it was, like, the American Idol of, like, wine bloggers. And well, what's Ryan Seacrest really like? Exactly. <laughs> he really loves that Zinfandel. <laughs> but how did you game plan it then? What did you do? My first thought was, once they announced the job, you know, they said, okay, well, we're going to do this official announcement on Market Street in San Francisco, like, five days from now. And if you can come, you know, and they announced it, not to me, they announced it to the world. If you can come do this, you know, you'll get to learn about what the contest is all about and all this. And, you know, I'd just been laid off. I had, you know, you know, scratching every nickel together. So I didn't have a lot of expend, you know, a lot of extra cash. So I called up actually the PR team and just asked a couple of questions like, hey, is it worth it if I fly out there? I'm really interested in this. And their very first answer was like, yeah, please don't. Yeah, no need to come out. Like, it's just kind of a, you know, a spectacle type thing. Don't spend your money. I hung up the phone and I immediately booked a plane ticket and um, a hotel. But fortunately, I had, you know, there was no money out of my pocket. It was all Delta Miles and Marriott points and stuff. 
So I flew out there and I was um, made sure kind of like you would be like for, you know, the new Nike sneakers coming out or, you know, in line to, you know, get your audition at American Idol. I was the very first person in line by about three and a half hours. Being the first person generated a lot of publicity because, you know, reporters were there and X, Y, and Z. And you're able to say, I'm this laid off tech guy from Atlanta and I want to, you know, I want to run, be a blogger and all this, you know, all this stuff. And it just it just started snowballing from there. It was the absolute best decision I could have ever made was to be there first. And with that, it just snowballed and snowballed. And I still had to work really hard for about three or four months to get the job. But once I did, I also knew in the back of my mind, if I could make enough noise while applying for it, something else would happen. Someone else would hire me. I I would have a plan B, C, D, and E, and I would be headed that way. Don't take this the wrong way. Making a lot of noise seems like part of the signature. For, yeah. for dirty. Well, you know, it, it definitely. I always hope it's not noise. I hope it's. Um, I hope it's sharing what we're doing. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I know it could probably be taken from some people as noise. But but, it's, but where did that come from? Now, where did that that style come from? You know, I, I think even back in my blogging days, my wine blogging days, it was always a great way to share and to converse. I, I thought the power of, whether it's Twitter or the power of social media, it was such an interesting way that you could, you know, share and converse. And, you know, it's when, when I think of social media, which is what we've relied really heavily on, it's about these little, you know, it, it's, it's, it's like headlines of the New York Post. You, you, need, you need to put something out there that is exciting, that's, I don't want to say sensational, but that's like, wow, someone's going to stop and look and read or respond. Dirty to Kodak. <laughs> <Exactly>. Drop dead. <laughs> exactly. Um, so, yeah, it's always been leveraging the tools. And a lot of that comes from, too, especially with us jumping forward to the winery. I mean, we don't have any money to spend to build or grow. We don't have, I mean, we have everything tied up in trying to make wine. But we know I mean, our business is and relies on that being sold and people drinking it and knowing about it. So using things and making some noise is extremely vital. I mean, the only thing that's more important than that is making great wine. And so it's make great wine and then communicate and get that out the door because, you know, we're not coming in with, you know, you know, huge, like, you know, Scrooge McDuck back paddling through, you know, gold coin saying, oh, I live in Napa Valley, come to my vineyard, so. And no, it's, you know, we are definitely as bootstrapped as we can get. And fortunately for us being able to use these tools and make some noise, it's been, you know, it's really helped our business. So where did Rowdy uh, enter the <laughs> picture? Right? Yeah, so um, it's always important to, I think, for people to know and for me to share that Dirty and Rowdy is, there's actually four of us. It's, you know, we very, you know, very much always say it's like Dirty and Rowdy family winery. It's my wife and I, and then it's my best friend, uh, Matt or Rowdy and his wife. Um, Matt and I met probably right around 2006 in uh, Atlanta, Georgia. So Matt had been writing a food blog called Rowdy Food, and it was one of these really, um, it was the antithesis of what a lot of food blogs are, which are like, I'm going to go out to eat, hate the food and tell everybody about it. And, you know, the service was horrible and this. Matt had this really amazing thing. He was shooting a lot of video and a lot of slideshows, but with like rock and roll music. And just, it was, it was definitely very much, you know, from the streets. And, you know, and I don't, I don't mean like Nas and Jada Kiss from the streets, but like, you know, I mean, you know, very much like from, from the dirty stuff. Illmatic. <laughs> exactly. We gonna make it. We gonna make it. 
naked. <laughs> so no, it was it was a totally just really raw, like heart and soul. Like it was someone going out and that was like not only loving what they were experiencing and celebrating the art and the craft, but also trying to recreate it at home, which I thought was great. It's not like, oh, I'm just going to go and rip on this place or celebrate this. But it's like, oh, I went to uh, Babo and I just bought the cookbook and I'm going to cook the entire cookbook cover to cover. And you're going to watch it over like 375 days as I cook every, you know, every item in this. So he used to do cooking at home. Yeah, and still does. I mean, he is legendary in Atlanta as kind of a home. Like if, if you have a choice to go out to dinner or go to Rowdy's house, it's it's a really hard, you, you could say, oh, okay, I want to go to Atlanta's best place or eat at Rowdy's. And nine times out of 10, you might push to Rowdy's. I mean, he's just really, he's phenomenal. So I would read his blog and he really inspired me to start Dirty South Wine, which became my wine blog. And we used to comment back and forth on each other's stuff. And at one point, I don't remember if it was Rowdy or me, you know, writing back and forth. At some point, we're like, oh, let's go, let's go get a drink or let's get, and, you know, let's meet up. And Rowdy's wife and my girlfriend at the time thought that was the creepiest thing in the world. They're like, you two two bros are going to go out and grab a drink and you met online. And like, so instead of being just Matt and I meeting up or Rowdy and I meeting up, um, our significant others chaperoned the- uh, Oh, is that true? Chaperoned the mandate. Wow. uh, Yeah. (laughs) So, um, but once we met, it was- Was it like that scene in Goodfellas where they're (laughs) sitting at the table and the girls are like looking somewhere else? I think so. (laughs) I think Amy was probably, and Matt's wife was probably a little more involved. And my girlfriend at the time- um, At the time. Yes, yes. Perhaps a crucial statement. <laughs> yes, at the time. Um, wonderful person, but was not that into food and wine. And so she was being very, very nice to uh, attend. But once we met, it was like instant like synergy. Like, you and Matt. Yeah, long lost brothers. Um, I mean, down to the point, like born on the same day. And all, you were born on the same day. Yeah, two years apart, but both September 7th. And just everything, like you knew this was a friend for life. And we started after that, like cooking together and, you know, doing a lot of, you know, opening a lot of bottles together and really having this kind of food and wine adventure. Just, you know, again, this online bromance of dirty and rowdy doing food and wine in Atlanta. And we really thought at some point, wouldn't it be great to do something together? And who knew what that would be? Whether it be, uh, you know, doing a website together. I think your girlfriend knew. What <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that's what scared her. She's like, I'm out of here. <laughs> So um, when I got laid off and when I moved up to California, when the thought of starting to make wine came into play, it was a no-brainer. Matt was rowdy, was, you know, let's do it, let's go for it. Yeah, we started small, and that was in 2010, and just have been, you know, rolling and rolling and rolling, just you know, ramping up every few years. So Let's take it through the, the, the timeline here. Uh-huh. You did the Murphy Good job. Yep. Then you were working for Natural Process Alliance. Was well, that the next move? Yeah, so I went from Murphy Good. And Kevin Kelly, I, I, had, I had in my wine world before in living in Atlanta, so probably like a lot of folks in the 90s and everything or early 2000s in New York, if you're into wine, you didn't drink a lot of California wine. So it was Burgundy, it was Bordeaux, maybe some Southern Rhone stuff. And even like the Northern Rhone was kind of pushing it. You're like, oh man, I don't, I don't want to touch that San Josef stuff. And, you know, Cornas. <laughs> Cornas. Yo, that's, isn't that rustic? <laughs> so um, it was all very kind of old world focused. And um, I remember a wine rep, I knew a lot of folks that were distributors and Psalms in Atlanta. I can remember a, a distributor rep came up to me and was like, I know you hate California wine, but have you had Lyoko? And I'm like, oh, what the heck's that? He's like, 
Kevin Kelly, you know, this is the point when Kevin's making Lioka. He's like, he's the man. You got to try his wines. And I'm like, I'll, I'll try him. And I taste the wines. I'm like, oh man, these are actually, these are fantastic. And these might, might have been like the 07s or 06s. I'm like, wow, that's really cool. And it was right when Kevin, right around that point, I was kind of following the, you know, their wines. He started making the NPA or the Natural Process Alliance. And these were wines that were made, you know, most of them were, you know, heavy skin contact or a whole cluster, you know, maceration, sold in stainless steel canteens only within 100 miles of the winery. And I'm reading about this from Atlanta, and I think Alice Firing had written about it, John Bonet had written about it, and a few other folks. And, you know, oh, you got to make this pilgrimage to California to try these wines, and they're fresh, and they're delightful. And it really blew my mind, this whole concept. I'm like, oh, this is the same guy. Like, i got to get out there and try these wines. So all of a sudden, you know, I emailed Kevin back and forth a few times, back living in Atlanta, pre-Murphy Good, and... I'm like, where can I get these? No, you can get them at Tewar in San Francisco or here, here, and here. And strangely, like, also, like, at Gary Danko was pouring in them. So, like, from, like, you know, hip wine bars to, you know, really fancy, you know, white tablecloth restaurants. So, to totally back things up a little tiny bit, when I went to the Murphy Good kind of, you know, opening thing on Market Street and was the first guy in line, right after that finished, I got in a cab, I went to Tewar in San Francisco, and sat down and had the MPA and, you know, the, a, a glass of uh, Natural Process Alliance Chardonnay made by Kevin Kelly. So it was this really interesting thing of, hey, I'm coming here to apply for this job, but I, I need to taste this wine. As soon as I did that, I flew out uh, about three weeks later and spent a day with Kevin Kelly in the winery before even moving out to California. So he and I had become really good friends at that point and acquaintances and just, you know, kind of same thing. There was definitely a kindred spirit. I loved what he was doing. And I, I still think without Kevin, I would not be doing any of this stuff uh, without Kevin Kelly. And when I was working for Murphy Good, I always knew that this is, you know, this is a, a step in, but it's not where I'm going. And Kevin and I started talking towards the end of the six month deal. And he was like, hey, well, you know, you know I'm a, one, at the point, he was a one-man show. He's like, I could use, you know, someone over here. And he's like, obviously, I can't pay you like you can be paid. And, you know, or like, you know, Murphy Good was paying me. But he's like, you could come over here and, like, learn to do everything. And I, I dropped, you know, everything. I'm like, that's exactly what I need to do. Um, because, you know, a chance to work with someone like Kevin, one-on-one, and actually it became two, um, you know, two other people came on, or actually one other person. Um, so there was two of us plus Kevin to have a chance to do that and learn, I mean, from everything from cleaning the toilets to, you know, selling the wine to, you know, running the tasting room and all these things. It was such an intense period of, you know, learning in a very short period of time. And that, that's why I was there. I mean, that's why I, I realized I was supposed to be in California. What did you learn? I mean, what kind of became clear at that time? I, I think what really became clear that the most important thing was, was really... Um, was wine itself and that sharing. It's not the business. It's not the, you know, the sales part of it. It's not, I mean, it, it starts in the cellar. And at the same point, you know, I got more into natural wines in the years before that. Watching those get made that it's like, wow, it's, yes, it requires skill and yes, it requires knowledge. And there is science behind it if you want it. But at the same point, you know, fermentation is not, you know, it, you can break it into complexity, but wow, maybe I might be able to make wine. Maybe I could do this coming from this, you know, completely other world of experience, you know, not having gone to Davis, not having, you know, done, you know, internships here, here, or here. Maybe, maybe I could do it. And 
Kevin was really, really enthusiastic and encouraging, as was at the time Kevin's assistant winemaker was a woman, Angela Osborne, who has a tribute to Grace Grenache. I really like those wines. Those wines are awesome. And Angela and I ended up becoming roommates and working together for about a year and a half or two years for Kevin and then a vineyard and then Fela. But Angela was the same way. She was like, hey, just start making wine. And with seeing both of them and how they worked, it really made me think, okay, maybe maybe I can do this. Maybe I, I might not be able to do it well, but fermentation will happen. And, uh, you know, I, I don't have to have a degree to, to ferment something. So that was really the, the real start of it was tasting Kevin's wine, seeking him out, and eventually working for him for about a year and a half that got everything started. And you worked for Kathy Corson for a while. I did, yeah. Um, Kathy was the last person I've worked for. Um, I worked for Kathy for about a year and a half. And actually with Kathy, though, I went back to really the whole marketing, sales, running the tasting room, nothing on the production side, though. So working with Kathy, she gave me an awesome opportunity. I had finished, I'd gone from Kevin Kelly to working on a vineyard, Shake Ridge Ranch that we work with, then working for Aaron Jordan. And then when I um, stopped working for Aaron Jordan, for and that was all production, stopped working for Aaron Jordan, I knew Dirty and Rowdy was starting to grow a lot. And I couldn't really make my wines and help make someone else's wines at the same time. So Kathy had this position that was, you know, at first it was just a, you know, a, a spot for like tasting room manager. And I'm like, well, I don't know if I want to do that, but it's, it's for Kathy Corson. Like I'm, I was living in Napa at the time. I'd moved from Healdsburg to Napa. And if I were going to, if I was going to work for anyone in Napa that I hadn't worked for, which was Aaron Jordan before, I'm like, it's Kathy Corson. You know, I had thought I was going to move back to Sonoma County and this, and I'm like, there, there's someone and something about her, and I think for a lot of people, that is so important for California wine to get to do anything for her. I said, you know, that's that's the ticket. And we spent, you know, time talking about like, well, what do you really want to do? Maybe you're overqualified for just this or that, or do you really want to? That's what you told her? Like, yeah. I'm, I'm like, Kathy, I'm, maybe you're overqualified. <laughs> Kathy, I'm way overqualified. <laughs> and Which I totally am not. I'm like the least organized guy in the world. And she was very kind to have me do things I was not, <laughs> not necessarily skilled at. But um, for me, just to spend time with her for a year and a half and watch and learn, and I think more than anything, to taste those wines every single day for, you know, 450 days. That's one of the best wine educations I've ever had. And tasting back, you know, we always have old stuff open there and having stuff popped and popped and popped. And I think psychologically that has changed my view of California wine more than anything. Here's someone from the 70s that came as, you know, one of the first female winemakers that's never wavered from what she's done. And you can say, oh, a lot of people, a lot of people are stubborn, but not a lot of people survive. And Kathy has been stubborn, has survived, and it's just everything keeps going up and up and up. So to be able to watch that um, was an amazing experience and be able to taste and experience that. And also she was one of the most cool, amazing people where like during harvest time, I mean, she'd give me like 23, 24 days off in the busiest season, not just for them producing, but the busiest tourist season too. So if you're working in the tasting room, if you're doing sales, if you're doing marketing, but she's like, no, you need to go do what you need to do. And uh, it was quite an experience. And I, I still am like forever grateful for her. Um, and I stopped working for her back in August of uh, 13, um, right when 
uh, harvest of 2013 uh, started kicking up. Because when I think of her Gewurz, I mean, it has a little texture for a white wine. Mm-hmm, it sure does. Yeah, it's, um, there, I don't think there's really any extended maceration on it, but it does, you know, it does have some of that really nice, like, glycerol, and, and the wine's beautiful. We opened up shortly before I left 2001 Gewurz that she made. It's awesome, you know, and you, you never think of Kathy as you're like, okay, you know, Cabernet Sauvignon, Cabernet Sauvignon, but there's like, you know, 13-year-old or 12-year-old Gewurz trainer that she made. Like, that's pretty damn good. And I mean, w- worthy of like anyone like getting psyched for it. Let's talk about Shake Ridge Ranch a yeah. little bit. It seems kind of a hotbed. I mean, there's people making Tempranillo, there's mm-hmm. people making Gouvet. What's, what's the yeah. plot like? So Shake Ridge Ranch is a vineyard in Amador County in Sutter Creek. Um, it's owned by the Kramer family. Um, Ann Kramer was kind of a Napa vineyard consultant for a number of years and working from folks from Shandon to Paul Hobbs, planting a lot of the vineyards and working with a lot of the vineyards that Hobbs did in South, uh, South America and kind of like this rock star vineyard consultant. Well, she kind of went into, I don't want to call it retirement, um, but more like she's no longer going to work for other folks and she's going to do her own thing where she could really afford a great plot on some really killer soil was Amador County. So I think it was 2002, they had bought the land and planted the first vines there. Um, Immediately, they pretty much got gobbled up by folks like Andy Erickson and Annie Favia for Favia, rosemary cake bread from Gallica, who used to be the winemaker at Spotswood. So there's a lot of her Napa connections had come in and started picking up. And these are, you know, Helen Keplinger, you know, the first original plantings. And it's a 47-acre vineyard. In 2000, I think it was 2005, she planted a second, you know, 17, 18 acres. And when that fruit started to produce, um, a number of us jumped in on it. So Angela had a tribute to Grace. Um, Tegan used it for a year. John Lockwood from Enfield Wines and Matthew Rorick at Forlorn Hope. So you kind of had this- A bunch of nobodies. Yeah, but but a really cool mix. No, 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 no. no, no, Some of my favorite people in the business. And, and, And that's how a lot of us, like that's how I met a lot of those people was my wife and I, I was there for about two and a half months in the summer and my wife actually stayed for, so I was there in the summertime and my wife stayed up all the way through the end of, you know, the end of harvest um, because I went down to work at Fela for harvest. But it's a really killer spot that I think has a beautiful mix of kind of, you know, the old new California and the new new California, but it's got incredible soil that's insanely, you know, lots of granite, quartz, volcanic. They dug 40 different soil pits and never found the same thing really twice. And I, I think it's just, like you said, it's it's a hotbed of you know, really cool wine happening right now in, you know, of all places, Amador County. It's So it's not just like, hey, old vines in or old vine this. Like, no, these are new plantings. Like the old stuff's 2002. I mean, the old vines. And, you know, I think there's so much cool potential there. And it's a wine that regardless of who's making it and what varieties um, they're making, the aromatics are always off the hook. Um, the intensity of the fruit, but also the underlying minerality. It's just like, wow, this kind of has everything that we want in California. So it's, it's a killer, killer spot. The other day I heard a guy ask if, if you pick early and you said, well, we, th- we think we pick on time. Yeah, absolutely. It's, I mean, for me, I have become known and I, I don't think it's something I ever want to really be known at for like producing low alcohol wines. You know, I've got a lot of, you know, probably have made more wines under 12.5% than I have made at above 12.5%. But for me, it's never about like trying to hit alcohol numbers. It's about trying to find 
that fruit, when it is ripe, I mean, I don't want to ever pick anything underripe, when it is physiologically ripe in the balance and with the energy that I want in it. You know, I, I think once we hit what we, you know, like bananas, we all know a, what a, an unripe banana is. We all know what an overripe banana is. But once we hit that little kind of that no man's land of like, of where you like your banana and your cereal or where you like your banana and banana bread or whatever you're doing with it, at that point, it's all per personal preference. You know, I, I think I like to get things on the upswing. I want to see when, when the fruit is definitely ripe, but you don't take out a steak from, you know, if you're doing it in the pan, you know, in the oven, you don't take it out when it's done. You take it out while it's still moving because it's going to sit on the board as you let it rest and it's going to still be cooking while you rest. So it's like, you don't pick when it's perfect, you pick right before because it's still going to be moving forward. It still has energy. It still has life. So, you know, for me, I'm always like, yeah, I pick on time for me. That may or may not be what other people want to do, but I never want to be like, oh, yeah, we pick real early. Because there are people that pick earlier than I do, and there's people that pick later. It's just what, what do you want and what do you believe that vineyard can, you know, best express in that vintage, so... And why Mouvet and Petit Sirah? I mean, like, why those grapes? <laughs> and it's, you know, really, there's a lot of, uh, I've, I've had to, um, my wife has always told me, she's like, you say some stupid things a lot, which I've always said I use like Mouvet or Petit Sirah or Semillon out of, by accident. And maybe it's not accident, it's more serendipitous. In 2010, when I started making wine, I had intended my first wine I thought was going to be a skin-fermented Muscat, a skin-fermented dry Muscat. Start with orange wine, and it's all, you know, it's, <laughs> and then it's nothing but Tecate. Um, so I thought that was going to be the case. That was my first thought, make an orange wine right out of the gate. But 2010's weather was really challenging. A very, very cool year, followed by Labor Day weekend. We had intense heat spikes that basically, in Northern California, we lost about 35% of the fruit with sunburn. That vineyard was totally toast. Three weeks later, you know, plan B is, okay, we're going to make, you know, I actually thought in 2010 I was going to make white Zinfandel as plan B. I thought I was going to be ahead of the curve. <laughs> no, that vineyard got totally, you know, skunked out. And then I thought I was going to make something else and something else. It was like all these weather events, whether it's sunburn or whether it's rain and rot and mold, basically took everything that was available in Northern California and basically brought it down to nothing. Angela Osborne, uh, who I was working with uh, with Kevin Kelly, was sourcing from this vineyard, Santa Barbara Highlands Vineyard, in northeastern Santa Barbara County. It's where her uh, tribute to Grace is primarily from. And she was like, well, you know, there's some Mervet on this vineyard, and it hasn't been affected by the heat spikes. It hasn't gotten the rain. It hasn't done this. She's like, that might be your only stuff you can get. And the vineyard was so interesting, and the her wine is so beautiful that I thought... I guess I'm that that's I'm going to make wine no matter what. And that is an interesting site. It's something I have very little experience with. You know, I'm not a huge you know, at the time I was not, you know, a bandal geek or anything like that that I could say, oh well, Pibiron has this and then you know, the the soil type, uh, you know, Gronori is all clay and schist and No, I, I didn't know any of these things. And all I was drinking for red wines at that point was Cru Beaujolais. If I could have made anything red, it would have been Gamay. But at the point, uh, Steve Edmonds was the only guy uh, in 10 that was getting the Gamay uh, in California. So I'm like, okay, well, let me just get it and see what we do. And I, I'll just let me think about it. Like, not that it's Mourved, but that it is a grape that I want to, it, it's a grape from this site. 
not necessarily a variety from this site, but it is this site represented in what does it do? What does it, you know, what does that site show us? And, you know, we picked um, on the, at the right time, but um, about, you know, three or four weeks before anyone else did. Came in at relatively, you know, for the site, came in at relatively lower bricks. And I thought, well, you know, I like Crubeaujolais a lot, so let's whole cluster it and kind of quasi-carbonic it and see what it does. Everyone I talked to were like, no, you can't, you can't do that with Mervet. You can't do that. It's already too, it's already too intense. It's too much, too much beast in it. You know, you gotta, you gotta unleash the beast and, you know, you're going to get this really, you know, soil driven, just meaty, this, this, and this. You're going to have no fruit left. And I'm like, huh, soil driven. I like that. Meaty. I kind of like that. So I just kind of let it go. And I'm like, oh, you know, sometimes, you know, ignorance is the best, is the best method. Just don't listen, just go and see what happens. And the resulting wine are, are 10. I thought, was, I thought it was stunning. But what I thought was stunning was that it, I thought it had so much of that like, clay and sandstone character um, that really was part of the vineyard that I hadn't really seen a lot in um, a lot of the domestic Merveds that I had before. A lot of them were kind of like early 2000, you know, just definitely super extracted, very jammy, meaty wines that... No, good wines, but they just weren't what I was into. And what we saw with, with Santa Barbara was, wow, it's like, it's just kind of has that expression of what, what we were looking for in Pinot Noir when I was helping Kevin Kelly and, you know, why people like Ted Lemon or Adam Lee at Siduri make, you know, nine different Pinot Noirs because they're so expressive. I'm like, well, why doesn't someone approach Merved that same way? We've got not a lot of it planted in California, but it's on some pretty variable sources and places from Santa Barbara County to Monterey to the foothills to Mendocino, Sonoma. Why aren't we looking at this the same way? So once we made our first wine, we thought, you know what? Not only is it something that we'd like to explore, but as new winemakers at the same point, it was also giving us a chance that I'm not going out of the gate in year one buying Hirsch Pinot Noir. And I'm like, oh, I'm going to sell it at 75 and compete with, you know, with Hirsch, with Cobb, with, you know, Literai, with all these folks that are really, really great at it. And there's a benchmark set. For us, it was, let's, let's just learn and see. And at the same point, we have this kind of green field that is, and yes, you know, other people were making Merved, like Donkey and Goat and Brock and other folks, but it just, it really was one of the things people were doing. Like, well, what if we focus on it? So year two, we made two. Year three, we made three Merveds. And all we wanted to focus on was extremely disparate sites with totally different, you know, soil types, weather, vine age. Year four, we made seven, and which was a little nuts. <laughs> but, you know, it's been this exploration that I have to say is as much for us than it is probably, and maybe even more for us than it is for other people. It may get to a point, seven Merveds, that people don't care. Um, they want a good drink or they want a great wine. And for us, because like Tompier doesn't do seven. Exactly. They've got, yeah, like they've got five the, or six. No, I, I think they've got the the three and most of that. There's only one of them. That's um, I think the max percentage of Merved that Tompier makes on a given year is about 80, 85%. So, you know, the other, I, I always forget the three wines, but one of them's like 60% um, Merved, one's 70 and one's, you know, one's about 80 and change. Um, That's what the internet's for. Exactly. I'm, 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 I had to Google that on my way over. I'm like, oh, in case I get the Tompier question. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, um, How do I spell tortine again? Exactly. U before O, O before U. What's that vineyard called? Magooga? <laughs> so yeah we thought very much like, what a killer thing to learn with and at the same point it would be 
geeky for us, it'd be geeky for other people, and let's let's follow that path. Semillon came almost the same exact way. We thought when we wanted to start making white wines, we were going to, um, we had been talking with the guys at Arnett Roberts. They make a beautiful field blend from a vineyard called the Compagni Portis Vineyard. And in 2011, they thought there was going to be a little extra fruit available. And they're like, oh, yeah, you guys can, you know, we need X amount. You guys can have whatever is left. So like any sane human being, we're like, oh, first thing we need to do is buy a concrete egg. <laughs> and, you know, it's a totally crazy idea. But like, you know, we've never made white wine before. And it's, we're going to spend money for an egg. You know, it's totally things that make no sense. Like when I look back on it. So we bought this concrete egg thinking we were going to ferment this old vine white field blend. Well, it turned out the yields were crazy, crazy low that year. They got less than what they needed, which left us with a goose egg. I mean, not, not a concrete goose egg. Well, a concrete goose egg, yes. And we had... Sorry, that was no, really no, funny. No, I, 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 yeah, I was like, wow, I didn't even plan that one. <laughs> so, so we were scrambling right before harvest to try to find something interesting and white. And interesting to me doesn't didn't necessarily have to be like interesting and varietal. I mean, we didn't have to do something, you know, it didn't have to be, you know, Arnais or this or that. Rotor Veltliner. Yeah, well, actually, we make seven of those now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Well, see if you told me that. Exactly. Um, so um, we were scrambling and Literally, I'm combing. So you're scrambling goose eggs. Oh, you're scrambling goose eggs. We're scrambling to try to find something before harvest. Um, do you have to think to yourself, can I use another egg analogy? <laughs> exactly. To, like, do, do you have to like... <laughs> give, give, give me 30 seconds here. I'll, I've got another one coming. <laughs> so I was scrambling trying to find something. <laughs> Gosh, that's horrible. Um, and I literally, I, I never thought I'd be making a wine from Napa Valley. Fruit's really expensive. It's Chardonnay, it's Sauvignon Blanc, Cabernet, Merlot, and the Bordeaux varieties. But I just, out of giggles, looked like, let me look at the Napa Valley like uh, Growers Association page, where there's kind of like a want ad for like farmers with fruit in this. The very first thing in the very first line was two tons of organic semillon farmed by Tom Gamble, who I've actually known for like eight years, even before I moved out here. I'd been on the vineyard a bunch, but just to see Sauvignon Blanc and Cabernet, the very first thing was this. I didn't even call him yet. I just texted Rowdy and just said, we're making semillon. And he's like, what? I'm like, we're making semillon. Called Tom. I said, hey, can I check things out? And he's like, are you making wine now? And I'm like, yeah. And he, 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 My little boy's all grown up. Well, well, no, you could tell. He wasn't, he, he wasn't proud of it. I think he was terrified. <laughs> oh, and, I'm yeah. like, and I'm like, I will make sure we pay you right away and blah, blah, blah. And, this. and he's, like, he's like, wrong number, wrong number. <laughs> exactly. So I, I walked the vineyard with him that, that afternoon, and it was a killer sight. It was eight rows right on the edge of the Napa River, stony, gravelly, alluvial, sandy. And you're like, wow, this is actually, like, it's not what I expected from Yonville, especially for something, you know, something white. Most of it had been going into sweet wine production. And he's like, oh, you guys can make a late harvest? I'm like, nah, we're going to ferment it on, you know, we're going to ferment it, you know, in a concrete egg, which left him scratching. And then we're going to, uh, I'm going to do some of it on the skins. And that was like, you're going to do what? So, and again, we approached it where we didn't really know any better. Like, the only semions that it had from California had either been blended with Sauv Blanc or had been sweet wines. So, sem- like Farnante Dolce, yeah, exactly. Kind of yep, absolutely. And Raymond had actually been using the vineyard before us, and I think they had dropped the contract or something, um, but it was going into a late harvest wine. So when the fruit came in, when we picked it, um, yeah, we were like, okay, load up the egg, you know, press off the juice, load up the egg, and well, because we don't know any better, well, let's let's skin ferment half of it and see, just as educational, like, well, maybe we like one better than the other, and maybe you know, maybe we'll keep one and not keep the other, or you know, sell them separately. 
and getting to just kind of, again, serendipitously work with something that we had no preconceived notion for, like with Morved, I think we were able to kind of take it in a direction that hopefully where the vineyard wanted to go and not where, oh, well, it has to be this, 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 and this because, you know, Brokenwood in the Hunter Valley does this or so-and-so, you know, La Mission Aubryon Blanc does this. No, we just go forward and see what it does and hopefully, you know, hopefully it would work out. And that 11, um, I hadn't opened one in about a year and a half and we had a tasting at Aster the other night and it was kind of a vertical of all the years of Semyon and for having zero clue of what the hell we were doing. That wine, I'm really, really happy with that wine. So I think we've you know, been really, and Petite Syrah came the same way. We wanted to buy this vineyard or buy the fruit on this old vine vineyard of Merved that was getting ripped out. There was a plot of Petite Syrah next to it. And um, the farmer who owns the, the vineyard, we came up and we're like, okay, we're going to take the Merved and the Merved, you know, we want all that. And he's like, He's definitely like Mendocino, Redwood Valley, old school dude. And he's like, okay, you'll get the Mervedra. And he pointed over the other side of the vineyard and he said, well, what about the Petit Syrah? I'm like, well, you know, we don't really make Petit Syrah. And he just looked at me and kind of pulled up the pants. He's like, you do now. <laughs> and we're like, okay. But we really, same thing. I texted Rowdy and said, um, we're going to make a little Petit Syrah. I was like, what? And I'm like, without any preconceived notions, let's see what this vineyard gives us. And it wasn't a lot of fruit. It was like 0.75 tons. So basically enough for two barrels. I thought it was pretty tasty. Thank you. I, I really, um, for 2012, that's, um, that's definitely the wine that speaks to me the most. And a lot of it is that excitement of what does this do? And what I love about that wine is I entered, that was probably the first wine I really entered with preconceived notion that, oh, I'm like, I'm going to treat this just like we treated our first Merved, like light, whole cluster, quasi-carbonic, and we're going to make this light, juicy Petit Syrah. Well, Petit Syrah doesn't do that, whether it's picked at 21 bricks and barely, you know, barely touched at all. You know, it's, but it has so much energy and so much tannin and tension that it's, um, it's the one that I can really sit there and say, okay, you know, 15 years from now, when I want to go back and open any of the wines that we've made so far, that's the one I want to go for. At least, you know, you can only try to predict the future so much. But yeah, I, I really, th- that vineyard and that site, I mean, I, I would, I don't want to give up the Merved on that vineyard, but if I had a choice to give up the Merved or the Petit Syrah, I'd give up the Merved. Was there a big difference between 11 and 12 for you in terms of vintage characters? Yeah, absolutely. So we had gone really from two cool vintages, 10 and 11, back to back. Um, that had some similarities, really. And it's 11 was like 10 without the heat spikes. And we got everything in before the rain. So a lot of people would say, oh, there's nothing alike because all the rain you got in October. Well, we picked everything before that. But 12, yeah, 12 was the first time working in the sunshine and being able to, wow, like we don't have a month to make a picking decision saying, oh, we're kind of in the zone. It was like 12 was like, we need to get on it now. Like there's no hesitation. So 12, and also we had upped the amount of vineyards. I went from three vineyards in 11 to I think it was six vineyards in 12. And that's when I started driving. Our vineyards stretch from all the way down south, 400 miles south of the winery in Santa Barbara, to up, you know, 200 miles into the foothills, you know, 100 and some odd miles up into Mendocino. So it was not only crazy weather-wise, but the I felt like the ante was up a lot for, to make the style of wines that we're trying to make. So it was, you know, a lot of gray hair, a lot of driving. I think that 
2012 was the first of the years that I've driven over about 22 to 25,000 miles during harvest checking on all the vineyards. Because even though we don't own anything and we're a negotiant in that way, we try to make sure that like in, in the way that we work, I mean, we've got one decision to make and it's a picking decision. And if we blow that, we're not really doing anything in the winery to, to correct that. You know, it's just stylistically, and I have no problem with other folks doing it, but I, I don't, you know, water back, I don't acidify, I don't do any of that stuff. I'm, who knows, maybe, you know, ask me 10 years from now and I might be like, well, you know, the 2016 O'Doul incident when, you know, I had to do that. But, you know, we have to sweat that one decision. And 2012, really with that heat and with that intensity, really made it, you know, you had to be in the vineyard all the time. 2013, even more so. Um, and that's really knowing how hot it was in 2013 was when I knew I couldn't have another job in order to do what we were doing with the weather the way it was. Um, I had to devote all my time to Jordy and Rowdy and couldn't work for another winery at the same time. So huge differences between 10, 11, 12, and 13. And, you know, 2014, who knows? What about the label? I mean, there's like animals on there. There's some sort of melee. What's going on with that? There's dudes in like formal clothing. I, uh, I, I'm really like, every once in a while, I, I take a really good look at the label. You know, it's, it's almost like one of those stories you hear about, like, have you ever really looked at your hand? <laughs> like, it's just, whoa. <laughs> so Rowdy's brother designed the label. Um, Rowdy's brother's a graphic artist. And it kind of became a game of telephone of what we wanted with the label. I, I gave Rowdy's brother the idea while my wife and I were up on Shake Ridge doing all the vineyard work. And... Um, what we used to do a lot was weed whacking and it's hot, it's steep, it's kind of in the middle of nowhere. And when you're weed whacking for seven, eight hours a day, you know, the weed whacker is creating so much noise and hum. It's kind of like this, you know, drone of like, whoa, 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 whoa. so you have to put on headphones and listen to music and because- Or a podcast. Or a pod. Yeah, actually I did listen to a bunch of podcasts, but I don't think you were, your podcast was out then. <laughs> oh, oh, thanks a yeah, lot. exactly. I didn't know. I was like, damn, no. <laughs> it was- um, Blaming me because I got started late. <laughs> exactly. I think back at the time it was like, if it wasn't music, it was The Moth. <laughs> right. Oh, so popular, The Moth. Uh, oh, yeah. So it was listening to a lot of stories and things, but- um, the thing that's scary when you're weed whacking and then the, the machine's making enough noise, but then you've got music or a podcast or something going on, is you can't hear a rattlesnake. You can't, if there's something, I mean, a rattlesnake's awesome where it's like, if you get too close, it'll, it'll alert you. It's that, that's my rattle noise. And then the same thing if you're doing it early or doing it late towards dusk or towards dawn, that's when mountain lions come out. And I really, you'd get delirious for doing this for so long and your mind would start wondering. I'm like, dude, I just know, like out of the back one day, like this mountain lion's gonna leap up over the vines as Infidel and I'm gonna have to fight it off with a weed whacker or the pruning shears or something. So I gave Rowdy's brother like, hey, like, you know, is there some way, like I need a weed whacker, it needs to be pruning shears and um, mountain lion, you know, rattlesnake and like we're in the Sierra foothills. And he's like, oh yeah, I can do that. Well, what came back was like Davy Jones, like type, uh, you know, you know, rowdy, like kind of in like leather skins or something. Me in like kind of 18th century garb, weed whacker, a serpent, uh, you know, not even a mountain lion. It's like a jaguar or a cheetah, like this jungle cat. And I thought it was perfect because when you start looking back through like old books of like, you know, exploration through the 1800s across America or this, like there's an elephant, there's a tiger, there's all these like beasts that like, you know, Obviously, they kind of explain to somebody what they saw, and they're like, oh, like it, it must look like this, or it must like, and, and they're nothing like the creatures were. So it, it, to me, it kind of fit right in with kind of like this mythological expression of what reality was. So I really, um, 
that that label is really incredible. And I, and I never want to sell the wine based on the label, but um, that one we can. <laughs> so, Speaking about descriptions that may or may not match the reality, what's the market for orange wine right now? Yeah, um, for domestic or just... Uh, just in general. What's the story from a guy who's trying to sell some? Yeah, and and, well, and for me, I, I never really... I, I always like to think I make skin-fermented wine um, versus orange wine because um, I don't do extended maceration. Our Semillon, 70% fermented on its skins, but only until primary fermentation. At primary fermentation, I press it off. Um, and the other part goes in the, is fermented in the egg, and those get combined. So I always think I make kind of like really deep yellow wines that are a little bit cloudy. <laughs> um, but, you know, for me, it's the whole, at least w- why I make a difference. For me, the way we work is not about, you know, it's like if you've got the stereo on and you're playing, you know, music at, you know, I, I use this analogy a lot. You're playing the music at four. I think the way we macerate, the goal is to you know, move the dial to seven. It's the same music. It's just a little bit louder. It's a little bit more, you know, bright. And we do that for a couple of reasons, which I can get into in a second. But I think what happens with extended maceration wines, and I, and I love them, is you get past the point of, you get past the point of, you know, 10, you get to 11 and 12, where you're no longer playing the same thing, but now you've got distortion in there. And distortion can be really cool sometimes, but you're taking some of those characteristics and instead of making like, oh, this is more like the semion we're uh, accustomed to, now we're in, you know, it's a totally different creature. And they're beautiful creatures. But for us, it was all about, like, let's try to amplify those varietal characteristics versus just distort those. I think the orange wine, I think there's it's slowing down a little bit, um, unfortunately, because those still are some of my absolute favorite wines, um, especially, and for my wife too. I mean, if you gave her a choice probably to drink anything, you know, her top three wines probably, uh, one of them is any of the, I mean, it's not just like Radicon or Slave or Jaco or something. She's like any Radicon, like it, it doesn't matter. She loves, you know, like that, that would definitely be like, you know, going to the electric chair wine for her, that or two others. But That's uh, actually not a good way to phrase it. No, for, it's uh, for marketing. Well, I, you know. I know you're a marketing genius <laughs> and uh, well-known for your skills, but uh, I just, I'm just going to give you some off the cuff feedback that that's not actually. Because when my wife's going to the chair. Those eggs are going to be scrambled up. <laughs> oh, man, it's been a long week. <laughs> I don't even know what we've been talking about for the past, you know. This has only been going on for Where five minutes. Where am I? Right? <laughs> Saigon. Still in Saigon. <laughs> Bring them back alive. <laughs> wow. But, yeah, so I think the market's changed a little bit. But I, but I also think it's something that um, – it's one of those things, have we given up before we've actually really given it a great effort? You know, it's so much flack and so much crap and so much stuff about orange wines, obviously, in the past year has come out. And it's like, you know, oh, you can't make it in California. You can't do this. Or, you know, the wines of, you know, Friuli or Radicon or so-and-so or Vodapevich. Like, you know, you know, there's no terroir in those things. Or, oh, have, have we given them a shot? You know, have we given them something to become anything but fad? And, you know, I think as we'll watch probably in the next couple of years, you know, hopefully there's people that keep keep trucking with it. And, I mean, domestically. And it's not like, oh, well, they don't sell anymore. Because I think you don't have to make a lot of it. I mean, you, you can still like, okay, I mean, for us, you know, you know, our big lot's like 200 cases or 250 cases. And, you know, you can do, you know, you know two barrels or three barrels of that stuff and still have some really fascinating things and still move the ball forward. And progress and get better. So I think 
the last thing I'd want to see is people to give up before we've really domestically had a chance to experience what these wines can do, and especially with age on them. Because I, I think you had been, uh, you had ridden one time, and it's like, wow, like, yeah, maybe like the current release of Radicon really hurts. You know, maybe it's really tough, but you're like. 2002 right now is starting to show these really cool vineyard characteristics and these really cool variety characteristics. And we don't know those with our wines yet. And we, if we shut it down now, you know, you know, we kind of lost, you know, all of these things, why we ever even tried doing it. So I, I think it's, we're at an interesting point, but I know the, the few folks that I know that make them are still, you know, are still making them and making them, but we might see less people jumping into the, into the orange wine fold. But I think for the most part, I, I don't know anyone in my kind of crew of folks that I associate with that has stopped. And actually, I know one guy that's actually started, which made me really happy because it's, it's insane. That'll be a really cool one in a few years. So, I mean... You've had a lot of success, seemingly. I mean, mm-hmm. I know it's a small-scale winery, and mm-hmm. I, I, I don't see you in uh, full-page advertisements and major publications yet, but, I mean, yeah. in a fairly short period of time, we're talking about, like, you've made three vintages or of wine. Four vintages, yeah. You know, but one, you've released, released three. three vintages of wine, and, uh, you know, you already have more bottlings of Mouved than Tampier. I mean, <laughs> who the hell are you, and why do you think you deserve all this? Or, or certainly, like, you know, how did it happen, I guess I would say. Yeah, I think the one thing is I've been very fortunate with folks like Kevin and Aaron Jordan, Shake Ridge, Corison, all these folks. Um, you know, we, we dove headfirst in to try to learn as much as possible. And it's happened in a very, very short period of time. But I think the, the work we've put in has been pretty crazy as well. We still are in that spot. And, and I hope to always stay in the spot that, you know, every year is an adventure and every year, you know, you try to say like, do I really know what I'm doing here? And I mean, yes, you do. And you have the design and the idea of where you're heading, but every year still a learning adventure. And I think we get better and better every year. But the, the one thing I always just, I always want to think is with this whole thing is that whole concept of never, you know, unless it's coming to, um, you know, probably surgery or like starting a prison riot, like never not knowing, never not knowing what you think you do, you know, know how to do, like keep you from doing it. It's, um, you have to, you know, we were in a very incredible time, whether it's on the winemaking side, whether you're cooking, whether you're doing whatever that you can jump in, you know, head first, a lot of things. You, you might break your neck, but you should still try. And I think Fortunately, with Rowdy and Amy, Kate and I, we've all had a, and we've, we've been small enough and small scale enough that, you know, we knew the first couple of years that we could do and try whatever we wanted to. And we weren't going to like go into financial destitution. Um, you know, it wouldn't be, wouldn't be easy, but we knew even if we had to drink all the wine ourselves. So now I think for us, it's okay after five years of, or four and a half years of just really like, you know, working and sacrificing. And, and, I, and I mean that um, sacrificing in a good way, but, you know, oftentimes of like having two jobs, my wife now has three jobs. Everything we do goes into trying to make this work and it looks extremely successful from the outside. I mean, we've been incredibly well supported with the trade, with our customers, consumers, and everything. But at the backside of it still is um, there's a huge hole to fill. Though it's looking easy and all these things are happening in our favor, at the same point in time, it is a, you know, it's a business that like, we have to, you know, there's, there's no more point of, oh, we can drink all the wine. So we have to, you know, move forward. We have to get better. And I mean, we have to become profitable at some point and we're not. So 
all these things. My, my wife and I just moved into a house with heat, which was a, that was a that was a uh, a cool thing. That was you know that was a, there you don't was have a, to worry about that in the south, but exactly. But in, in Calistoga, we do have to. So I think a lot of people, you know, it's, it's interesting, and it's not just us. I mean, all of our friends are in the same boat as well. It's just you know the wines are going great. We're doing all these things, but we're all at the same point. Most of us are so so bootstrapped and. It's really exciting at the same point because you see someone start to succeed. Someone sees you, and it's uh, at the same point. You know, either someone helps pull you up, you help push somebody forward, and it's there's a really amazing camaraderie. And I think a lot of us are all in that same boat together. So it's been a very short period of time, but it's been due to you know the help and the willingness of a lot of people to let us do what we do, you know, while working for them. So it's it's been been a wild journey. Hardy Wallace, he's looking for the happy and he's not giving up. Thanks very much for being here. <laughs> Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Hardy Wallace of Dirty and Rowdy Wines. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.